Another awesome episode of Fire and Water Records, the music anthology show of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm Ryan Daly, and way back in January, I debuted a new recurring show on this podcast, Soundtrack Selections, wherein my guest and I discuss some of our favorite songs that appeared in movie soundtracks. And well, everything about 2020 has been great since then, right? Yeah, everything. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, before the year ends, I wanted to do one more episode talking about music and movies. Joining me this time, the host of the Palace of Glittering Delights on the Two True Freaks Network, as well as several other podcasts, please welcome Mr. Andy Leyland. How's it going, my friend? Uh, it's it's great, Ryan. How are you? We we made a pact at the beginning of this year we would do more together, and we have. This is the second thing we've done this year, and there's a third coming up. There's a third coming up on the horizon. So yeah, but by, so by the end we, of the year, we we will have made we will have kept that promise. So we did. We've we've kept that bargain. How are you? I'm doing all right. Uh, I mean, hey, we're almost <laughs> we're almost through this year. Let's just it's almost almost there. Hunker almost down. There. Hunger down, be smart, be safe, let's do this. Um, mm-hmm. Before we get into our music selections, I, actually, I, I had a quick question for you. What was the last movie that you saw in the theater? Oh, we were talking about this not that long ago, and I could not for the life of me remember. And we came to the conclusion it must have been Spider-Man Far From Home. Mm. That's the last one we can all remember seeing in the cinema. And I know we were all very much looking forward to Bond, and then that didn't happen. And it has continued to not happen. Did you not see Rise of Skywalker in the theater? Uh, we di- oh yes, we did. It will have been a Rise of Skywalker, then, won't it? Yeah, because I, I was yeah. thinking that was that, yeah. that was that was mine, and that was in two thousand nineteen. It was it was around that Christmas. So I do yeah. not think I've been to, to the theater in two thousand twenty. We almost saw Knives Out at the beginning of the year, and didn't work out mm. that way. So right, yeah, I'd completely forgotten that Star Wars was at the very end of twenty nineteen. Okay. God, the Rise of Skywalker <laughs> seems so much older than barely a year. <laughs> yeah. Wow. It's because I've lived with that disappointment for such a long time. It feels it, it like. hangs on you. It hangs on you. I did. I I did my recent Star Wars show, and I I did my it recent was very rewatch, good. And yeah. there was something a little bit cleansing about watching it uh, a year later, a year removed, without that emotional baggage, yeah. and just kind of well. The thing, the thing with it, the rise of, it is eminently watchable. Mm-hmm. I agreed wholeheartedly yeah. with Omar about that. But you're, I'm watching it going, why did they make that decision? <laughs> what, what creatively brought them to the conclusion that that was the best direction to go in? <laughs> As I said, it holds up to zero scrutiny, but it's oh, just... Oh, God, no. Well, yeah. the fact that they happened to find the knife that just by dumb luck, and that knife happens to lead them to the water planet just by dumb luck, they end up stood in the exact right place for the knife to point them exactly to where in the Death Star this is. 
just by dumb luck, by a bit that comes out of the knife that has never been mentioned before, to a Death Star that's crashed in water. And, you know, riverbeds, waterbeds, they move. It, it worked in the movie Goonies. Stop, stop complaining. <laughs> you can just see Abrams going, hey, it worked in Goonies. They bought it then. They'll buy it now. <laughs> oh, I don't mind that it's a side quest, but at least pretend that you care that it makes sense. Uh, they they didn't have time to pretend like they had to get, they had to get that movie done. They... Anyway, anyway, let's let's move. On. Anyway, we're not doing another three hour Star Wars podcast. Exactly, exactly. We're gonna... But I did, I did, I did like that you you grew to like Solo. I don't think there's anything wrong with Solo. Honestly, I think it's the only one since the seventy seven original that is just balls out pew pew space opera adventure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like it. it the highs are not as high as some of the others, but the floor, like the bottom, is like no, there's nothing I outright hate or groan about in that movie. There are minor nitpicky things, but I yeah, you, I enjoy you, it. You, you were exactly right. If yeah. that was a Disney Plus four hour miniseries, we'd have all gone. Hey, that was great. Yeah, give us more. All right, let's turn our attention back to the the songs and the movies that we're going to be talking about. Um, Andy gave me a list of 11 songs, I think you said, uh, the first one. And actually, looking at the list, I was like, well, you know what? You're going to have to pare it down to six, but three of these songs are on my big master list, so I can make this easier for you. <laughs> and, yes. uh, and And I, I, I took some of them, so you'll still get to comment on your on some of those songs from your list. But what, like, looking at like the the master list and the songs that you ended up picking, what kind of inspired or motivated these selections? Was there uh, like a theme or any kind of other thought going into these choices? I love the way that you imply that I put thought into my <laughs> podcasting. <laughs> Thank you. Bless you. Every Thank guest has a different approach. <laughs> <laughs> well, my approach is to set my pants on fire and wing it. <laughs> um, no, they were all just basically songs that I felt really suited the film or really appealed to me or stuck out in some way or in the case of one that was sadly whittled from the list has wheedled its way into my affections just because the amount of times my family have made me watch those god-awful movies but yeah for the most part it was it was just that and anything goes was on the original list that i trimmed down before i even sent it to you the version from indiana jones and the temple oh yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow I, I god i i was thinking about that song not too long ago but mm. oh man anyway anything goes well anyway as i said i mean coming up with my list i just i just poached three from yours because i was like yeah this will make it e- my job easier yeah, this'll do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. um and then i only had to plug two from my own kind of master list of like 50 songs that keeps adding and subtracting so yeah i am pretty... a big fan of the why put any effort into this approach to <laughs> podcasting <laughs> The year is almost over. Let's just keep... Yeah. <laughs> I have to say as well, you were very gracious about me inviting myself onto your show. I literally looked at the calendar and I said, we don't have a show that Monday. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> this guy will do. <laughs> I was trying to make it work. So. Yeah, I basically emailed Ryan, texted Ryan, and said, you know, what do I have to do to get on this show? And you told me that people normally abuse you wholeheartedly, so I did, and here I am. Yeah, yeah. It's usually a lot of work, and this time I was like, eh, okay, whatever. Yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> you caught me at the right moment. That was this really guy will do for the Christmas show. No one's paying attention then anyway. <laughs> 
Well, let's uh, let's not waste any more time. What is the first song for this version of Soundtrack Selections? What do you got? Uh, Lust for Life by Iggy Pop from the movie Train Spotting. I wasn't that big an Iggy Pop fan before I saw Trainspotting, to be fair. Um, but Trainspotting is such an epoch-making movie. At the time that it was released, it pretty much changed a lot of things in terms of British cinema, in terms of Channel 4 funding their own movies. They'd done it prior to that, but I don't think anything had really had the big mainstream success that Trainspotting had, which is quite weird when you consider that Trainspotting isn't really a mainstream movie. It launched an awful lot of careers, including director Danny Boyle, who Mm -hmm. up to that point, I think, had done a couple of episodes of Inspector Morse and the the really brilliant movie Shallow Grave. If you've never seen it, go and find it with Christopher Eccleston and Ewan McGregor. Boyle's use of music in Trainspotting is almost constant. There's very rarely a scene in that film that doesn't have some kind of musical underscore that isn't a score that is a, that is actually um, a pop song or a dance song or whatever. And it, it punctuates and changes as it goes throughout the film. What's interesting about Lust for Life is when you first see that scene of Spud and um, Renton running through the streets of Edinburgh, it gives you the impression that it's a joyous moment for them. <laughs> And it does exactly what the film does, which it has to show you the highs of drug abuse in Scotland before it can show you the lows and how much it screws up all their life. And then the second time you see it, you see that it isn't that at all. But just the shots of the feet pounding down the main street in Edinburgh, past John Menzies, just opposite the castle, and up the stairs, it's almost as well geographically accurate which is quite rare for a film. Normally, if you know where somewhere is filmed, you're just pulling it to bits. In terms of that street doesn't go there, that's six miles away. What's going on? It's almost accurate in train spotting the way they do it. And it's just it's just the perfect accompaniment for that scene. The dum 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 yeah, dum yeah. almost matches the running feet that you see of, of Spud and, and Renton as they're being chased by the police. And it's just a, a cracking way to open the film, especially with Choose Life, Choose a Big <laughs> Fucking Television, the, the whole monologue that Ewan McGregor does. Mm-hmm. It's just a brilliant opening for a brilliant movie from a filmmaker whose career I have watched with interest because I don't think he's let me down yet. I don't think Danny Boyle has made a bad movie, and I would have loved to have seen what he did with James Bond. I was actually going to put that out on Twitter, and I actually I still might before this episode comes out. I was going to ask people what their favorite Danny Boyle movie is uh, up to this point. Because yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, I I remember when this movie came out, and everybody 
like in my sort of circle and a lot of my friends were talking about it and they loved it. Uh, and I had seen Shallow Grave and really, really liked it. Um, I've never, I, I haven't seen the sequel to this actually. I haven't seen Trainspotting 2. But... Right. The best thing I can say about Trainspotting 2 is it does not tarnish the original. Right. It's not bad by any stretch of the imagination, but you can't recapture the zeitgeist. Right. You know, Trainspotting right. was massive. Students had that poster on their wall. If you were in your 20s when that came out, which I was, it spoke to you on some level. I mean, I've never been a drug addict and it's right. ever ruined my life, but I am addicted to comics. Everyone has something in their life. And the ultimate message of the film that you will ultimately <laughs> become part of the system. That's true. Yeah, yeah. You know? Um, but also, I, I I love the song. I love its usage. Um, yeah, I mean, I I don't I I wasn't I mean I wasn't familiar with the song or really I knew Iggy Pop by name. But when the movie came out, they re-released the song as a single with a new video um, mm. with him. And yeah, just that percussive opening. And it's it's like a long it's like a minute and a half opening before you get to the lyrics or the vocals. And the vocals aren't really important. It's not like a a really special like you know like noteworthy or poetic song, but just that you know that driving drums and bass line and everything that matches up with the running at the beginning. Oh, it's such a good iconic thing. And and mm. yeah, yeah, great movie. Like I mean, launching the careers. Of, I mean, Ewan McGregor obviously, um, but Johnny Lee Miller and Robert Carlyle mm-hmm. are also part of his crew, and that's. Yeah, yeah, really. Cool. Kelly McDonald. Kelly McDonald was yeah, yeah. in an episode of, um, oh, God, the new Simon Pegg, Nick Frost thing, Truth Seekers. Oh, yeah. She's in an episode of that. And she was also in uh, Boardwalk Empire, the HBO series. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, so Kelly, that was the first thing Kelly McDonald ever did. That's right, yeah. All right, moving on. Uh, my first song for the episode, and this is one that I, I picked from yours, um, but I did have the entire soundtrack on my list at some point, so I was going to come to this eventually. But the song is... No Easy Way Out by Robert Tepper from Rocky Four. saw the movie and like heard the soundtrack in the 80s this was for a long time my favorite song on the soundtrack um i loved the scene in the movie because it's rocky driving this awesome black lamborghini um and it's like this great you know again like it starts out like with a drum and bass thing and the bass setting the tempo for the song i mean you could strip every other element of the song away and just play the bass and i would know what song this is like that's Mm. how that's how much i identify this one looking back 
this is a really kind of absurd moment in the movie. It oh, is yeah. it is a music video in the middle of the movie. It's shot that way. Stallone does a bunch of like shortcuts of the door opening, the keys in the ignition, like the car starting, everything like that. And then it's just him driving down the street, flashing back to these moments, like intercuts with flashbacks of Apollo's fight and Apollo's death, which, by the way, only happened five minutes ago in the movie. <laughs> so we don't need to be reminded. Um, but also other cuts of like his training, stuff with Mickey, who's not in this movie because he's dead, stuff with like how he fell in love with Adrian because they've been fighting. It really is like if you cut the four and a half minutes of this movie out and you showed it on MTV, it's just a music video highlight of the movie. It's really weird. Like, why? Like, and if you take that out, you also miss nothing of the movie. It doesn't advance the plot or the story or anything. It's just a music video in the movie, in the middle of the movie. Well, you can pretty much say that about a lot of Rocky IV. If true. You living, living in America out, it wouldn't affect the film. Very true. At very all. true. It's, it's, Rocky IV is the best bad movie ever made. <laughs> Um, because it is not a good film. I'm sorry, if you think that's a good film, you're deluding yourself. It is, however, a magnificent film <laughs> in every conceivable way. It is 88 minutes of pure... Rocky ends the Cold War. <laughs> Come on, dude. That's it's how it's good 88 minutes with a story that's maybe 12 minutes long. <laughs> yeah, maybe 20 if you stretch it out a bit. Yeah. But yeah, there's there's so much padding in that film. But it's funny that you should say this is a music video. That's how I first saw it. The first scene mm. of this film I ever saw back in the day, Barry Norman, who was a film critic, essentially our version of Siskel and Ebert. Yeah. He hosted a show on the BBC called Film and then whatever year it was. So this was Film 86. And this was the clip they showed of Rocky IV. Just this, just no easy way out. <laughs> Him driving through the tunnel and playing this video with lots of clips from other films. And it's it's just a great 80s driving pop song that really works when you're out jogging. But like you say, you could cut this out of the film. But that doesn't make it not brilliant. No, which no. Which is essentially Rocky Four in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, actually, I think you can argue a case it is the worst film in the Rocky franchise. Ah, uh, yeah, well... It's not. Yeah, it doesn't rank on my, on the bottom of my list. No, no, um, it wouldn't be but, on the bottom of my list of favorites by no means. Yeah, but in terms but of the film story, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, yeah, that's, there's there's definitely something to that. It's Actually, very flimsy. Yes, yes, it is. I I talked to Mark Marble from the Lantern Cast about the whole Rocky franchise and the saga a long time ago. And he actually told me, and I didn't even realize that, but uh, Sylvester Stallone had a falling out with Bill Conti, who scored the first three movies. Um, hmm. And they got into a fight over something. Uh, and that's why Sylvester Stallone didn't use Bill Conti for Rocky IV. And instead of using the, the traditional music, he just had all of these, basically just like a, a, a rock pop soundtrack to it mm. uh, to set all these things, because it's just a bunch, there are a ton of musical montages and numbers like that. Um, but even saying that, Vince Ticola's theme when he's trading in the middle of um, Russia oh, is yeah. still great. Oh yeah, and, and again, like he, he does the same songs for, or sounds for uh, uh, for Transformers, the animated movie. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, if something works, do it more <laughs> yeah. than once. Yeah. Again, a movie that does not hold up to a lot of scrutiny, but is eminently watchable. 
Yes, and it's also it's here purely for the brainless entertainment of it all. Mm-hmm. There's no deeper meaning to No Easy Way Out. It wears its heart on its sleeve. It is exactly what it pretends to be, yeah. and there is nothing wrong with that. Yeah, but a, but a good a driving beat song, a good workout song, or yeah, it's fun for those purposes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, where do we go from there? Uh, next on the list is "Don't Stop Me Now" by Queen, obviously from Shaun of the Dead. So don't stop. Me now it appears in the middle of, of Shaun of the Dead, as I said before we introduced the song. Shaun of the Dead is brilliant. Shaun of the Dead, as with Danny Boyle, what you have with Edgar Wright is a writer, director who knows his music, and his music is very, very important to the film. So it's quite a surprise to learn that originally, I, I think Don't Stop Me Now didn't soundtrack this scene. They had another song that they wanted to soundtrack this scene, and for whatever reason, they couldn't get the rights to it. I think that's right. I could be misremembering the scene. But if it is, if that is a true story and Don't Stop Me Now was a last minute replacement, that was that was just a blessing. Because in the list of Queen songs, Don't Stop Me Now is certainly near the top of the best. Mm-hmm. But prior to Shaun of the Dead, what a lot of people don't realise is it had largely been forgotten. It wasn't a song that got played a lot. If Queen got played on the radio, it wasn't Don't Stop Me Now. And Don't Stop Me Now became more important and more recognized as being just a classic foot stomper because of Shaun of the Dead. Yeah. I'm glad you picked this one because I had forgotten about this. Um, I've seen Shaun of the Dead. I, I like the movie, but I've never been a big fan of zombie movies in general. So I, appreciating how, as a, as a parody of, as a spoof of the genre, I really enjoyed the movie. But like, if it was between Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz, I pick Hot Fuzz every single time if I'm going to watch one of the Edgar Wright movies. Um, I think it's funny you should say that because I have grown to appreciate Hot Fuzz a lot more over the years to the point where I actually think I'd agree with you only because I think Shaun of the Dead became almost too popular. Do you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Like there was a period where ITV4 over here has has like seven movies at any one time and it plays them to death and it played Shaun of the Dead to death. Whereas I think Hot Fuzz, Hot Fuzzy's joke is funnier. You know, what if we did one of those lethal weapon type Mm -hmm. over the top cop (laughs) movies, but set it in the middle of rural England. That's a funnier gag yeah. than Shaun of the Dead, really. Yeah. Um, but there's no denying Shaun of the Dead's a great movie. Oh, yeah, again, I... I think Edgar Wright joins the Danny Boyle Club. I don't think he's made a bad film. Mm. 
Uh, yeah, I, I, so again, I had completely forgotten about this scene until you mentioned it, and I went back and I looked at it. I was like, this is wonderfully brilliant because the scene is they're, they're trapped in the pub with the zombies outside, and one of like the bartenders is a zombie, and they're going after him. And the ju- and like a tr- some circuit breaker thing trips, and the song plays on the jukebox. And, and Nick Frost and Simon Pegg and can't think of the girl's name who's in it um but they all grab pool cues and they just start like running around this bartender just beating him almost to the beat of a song with these pool cues doing absolutely nothing to the zombie because it's a zombie and it's Mm. so it plays almost like a dance number it is so funny but the other thing that i had to say was and i appreciate you mentioning this is because not only had i forgotten about this but this song was almost kind of ruined for me. Not ruined is is a bad thing, but I couldn't separate this song from something else that wasn't quite a movie. But on the late show with uh, Jimmy Fallon, he will do these lip-sync battles where he has his guest and he lip-sync to a song and do something. And Paul Rudd performed on the show doing this song Hmm. um, and did a great performance. It was a very funny, you know, milk it for the camera with Paul Rudd's smile, which like him or don't like him, he's got this smile that makes you think, like, there's a reason they joke about how the man still looks like he's 23 years old. Like, he, like hmm. the way he smiles, it's like, this guy has never had a bad day in his life. Um, just something about him. He did So he did a version. So now, for like three years now, whenever I think Don't Stop Me Now by Queen, I think of Paul Rudd and that thing. So now I'm back to like, oh yeah, Shaun of the Dead. I have so, I have another go-to for this song. I think it's been used in a couple of films since, but I I, I do credit Shaun of the Dead with yeah. bringing it back to prominence. Probably, yeah. And that, that, I think that's a good thing. You know, Queen should be known for more than just Bohemian Rhapsody. Right, right. All right, moving on to the next song. Uh, this is the first one that wasn't on your list, but it was definitely inspired by you. Um, because, you know, I like to cater to my guests. I was like, all right, Andy, i got to do something from Spider-Man. Uh, and this was a song that I was going to do anyway if it came to an episode dedicated to uh, animated movies. Um, but I'm picking a song from Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. The song is What's Up Danger by Blackway and Black Caviar. Because I like high chances that I might lose. I like it all on the edge just like you. Ay, I like tall buildings so I can leap off of them. I go hard with it no matter how dark it is. I'm insane, but on my toes. To keep the world balanced on my nose I had a slumber party with all my foes Now I wear them like a badge on all my clothes If I'm crazy, I'm on my own If I'm waiting, it's on my phone If I sound lazy, just ignore my tone Cause I'm always gonna answer when you call my phone Like, what's up, danger? Like, yeah, cause you weren't gonna pick Macy Gray, were you? <laughs> I forgot about that one. Um, Andy, I know you just recently did your episode ranking all of the Spider-Man movies, and you Mm -hmm. had Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse as number one. I wholeheartedly agree with that. I think it is the best Spider-Man movie, theatrical movie. I think it is one of the best superhero movies uh, in, in general. And this song plays during one of my, like, all-time favorite superhero moments. The way it's set up, which is 
Miles has finally got to that point where he's finally ready. He has had his emotional catharsis. The, he, he has grieved for a lost family member. He's had that moment where he has been challenged. Can he rise to the occasion? Can he fulfill the hero's journey? And this is the part where he walks in, he puts on the costume, he spray paints it to make it look like his, and he does that headfirst dive off of the skyscraper mm-hmm. and starts that to do shot, the swing. Yeah. yeah, oh, God, it's magnificent. Yeah, and it starts to do the swinging through the city. And we have seen Spider-Man movies where he's swinging through the city, but this one just does it so uniquely and it's not because of the animation although that does help just the the different visual language of animation and the and the style that the movie approaches is important but he puts the own he puts the Miles Morales flair on it the way he like combines swinging and running off of the street and the cabs and off the side of the building and the energy and the way it builds it's just such an awesome moment and the song just brings it to life yeah it's a wonderful hero moment i i credit into the spider-verse with actually making me like miles morales a lot i mean in the comics i read the big omnibus that brian bendis did and honestly i really did think this was just bendis he'd created this character but then he didn't do anything interesting with him and he only came alive when he's dealing with peter parker's supporting cast and into the spider-verse basically takes the character and it looks at that character's background and culture and what makes miles morales different from peter parker and makes that part of the film mm-hmm. and just by doing that they make him a viable and interesting and ironically three-dimensional character yeah. in his own movie the movie is about him despite the appearance of peter parker and peter b parker and spider ham and spider gwen and all of that and that hero moment yeah that beautiful shot of him being the right way up and the New York landscape being upside down before the camera tilts. It's, it's simply beautiful stuff. Mm. That film is so wonderfully animated. Did yeah. that win an award? Yes. Yeah, well, it was, uh, it was. It won the award for Best Animated Feature uh, at the Oscars Good. that year. And Deservedly so. I, I I don't know about other other like more technical or animation specific awards. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if it cleaned up some of those. I hope mm. so because of yeah, just everything that that movie did was really good. And and something that I, gosh, I think I was on is it Jaws with Paul Spataro when the movie first came out talking about it. One of the things that I don't think gets addressed enough with that movie that I was most impressed with is it really delivers the idea of the legacy hero, which is something mm. that comic book fans have been living with for, you know, decades. Like, you know, our, once you become a comic book fan, at some point you're going to see your hero being replaced by somebody else and that fulfillment of it. With the movies, I mean, yeah, they recast, but you've never really had that that next level. And this, I think, kind of smooths that way of, yeah, the idea of Spider-Man is bigger than Peter Parker, and it's okay to break away from that from time to time, as much as we all love Peter Parker, and we do. Um, mm. there, there's something else where that Spider-Man idea is part of the popular culture, part of the zeitgeist, and maybe it doesn't just belong to one person. Uh, and, and I think that can increase with, so I think because of something like that, you could now do, a couple of years from now, they could do a new Iron Man movie with a completely different character, not just a recast Tony Stark. Um, we will see that with Captain America and the Winter Soldier. Um, mm. We might see that with Black Panther. I don't know what they're going to end up doing in terms of the passing of Chadwick Boseman. Um, 
I think the way to go with that, rather than recasting him, I think the idea, the the best thing to do would be to to have Shuri pick up the mantle because it has been done in the comics. There is a precedence for that for the comic book fans. I also think the movie Black Panther was in large part carried on the shoulders of a really strong female supporting cast. All of the women in that movie kicked ass to some degree more so than the main character. So why not just give them the the title and, and let a woman be the Black Panther in the sequel? But I don't know. We'll see what they do. Yeah, and Black Panther's a legacy title anyway, handed down from generation right, to generation. Right. So it's yeah. baked into the premise. Yeah, exactly. In that yeah. particular one. But also Into the Spider-Verse basically has laid the groundwork for DC to now do the Flashpoint movie. Yep. I don't know who wants a Flashpoint movie, <laughs> given that they've done it on TV and as an animated film. Why they, they're going back to it to do it as live action, God only knows. But, uh, but hey, they can squeeze a couple of Batmans in it. So. Flashpoint, starring five different Batmans and a Flash. <laughs> yes, but maybe not the Flash if something happens with that throttling thing. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> but yeah, I think the idea of legacy and alternate universes and stuff, we were all well-versed with it because we're comic book readers but the general public to the general public that didn't wash they didn't know what any of that was and slowly thanks to the dc tv shows being able to do crisis on infinite earths and particularly i think into the spider-verse they've introduced this idea that there is alternate alternate realities that they can pull other characters from and i i think they're going to go down that well with spider-man 3 as well or the tom holland spider-man 3 yeah, they might. They might I mean, well, I'm, yeah, there's there's certainly some clues to that and some hints, especially if Doctor mm. Strange ends up being part of that cast. But yeah. we'll see. All right. Yeah. Speaking of recasting the heroes of action film franchises, what do you got for our next song? Uh, you know by name by Chris Cornell from Casino Royale. of intent you can't get much better than that (laughs) you know you came into Casino Royale there'd been a lot of controversy surrounding the casting of Daniel Craig by people who don't know how casting works (laughs) just because you've seen an actor in something else doesn't mean that actor can't do something that you've never seen him do 
that's what casting agents are for. And even, you know, me and Angela were both Daniel Craig, because we kind of knew him for our friends in the North, and he'd done a film with um, Reciffins, where he was this nerdy writer. Mm. And you were like, he's going to be James Bond? Okay, all right, fair enough. And you go and see Casino Royale, and the opening, the pre-credit sequence is all black and white. And it is one of the roughest, most violent pre-credit sequences in Bond history. And it really sets out the stall that Daniel Craig's James Bond is not someone you fuck around with. This guy will throw you through a brick wall and not think second of it. And then the opening titles kick in and you've got those beautiful coloured opening credits with all the playing cards going, um, flashing against your eyes towards Chris Cornell's blinding theme, where he doesn't even have to mention the name James Bond for you to know who that song's about, because that's how much of a pop culture presence Bond has at this point. And as a statement of intent, a black and white pre-credit sequence with a minimalist Bond, whose lines of dialogue are basically, yes, considerably, and that's it. (laughs) And then this as the opening theme, which radically reinterprets what a bond theme can be it's a very grunge heavy mm-hmm. guitar led james bond theme which we hadn't really had since live and let die so that's a considerable amount of time to go with middle of the road ballads it's it's daniel craig's era in four minutes yeah so I, yeah a few episodes ago i did my uh my james bond theme songs episode and I mentioned that I love this song. I do love this song. This is one of my favorite songs to appear in a James Bond movie. But I'm also conflicted because I was like, this doesn't, to me, doesn't feel like a typical James Bond song because I'm, I'm more in the head of it's got to be sexy, maybe a female singer. There, there's kind of like a type, and this one breaks away from it. And, and you're right now, it does it deliberately and, and intentionally and it it is a striking change um and casino royale was the first uh bond movie that i saw in the theater um wow. I, I was i was yeah i was pretty late to the game now I, probably because probably because of the the era where i would have been getting in was right between timothy dalton and, and pierce brosnan it was like that six mm-hmm. or seven year gap when there wasn't a james bond movie was probably the time when i should have gotten in and been a fan um, but mm. there just there wasn't that thing because I I remember seeing trailers for the for um, License to Kill and I think I mentioned it to to Jared and Jason when we did that episode I thought there was something sinister looking about Timothy Dalton I think uh, I always thought he kind of yeah I was like there's something wolfish and kind of villainous looking about him going back to uh, Hot Fuzz when he when yeah, he, he why he makes such a good bad guy yeah. yeah. So then, yeah, but then, I mean, once once the Pierce Brosnan movies came, I saw every one of them, but I waited until they were on VHS or video or something like that, and I always enjoyed them, but I didn't have it, like, you know, it wasn't, like, baked into me that, like, this was something that I had to follow until I saw Casino Royale in the theater. I was like, this is great. This is the new Bond. This is my era. I am primed for this, and I loved the song, yeah. Well, there's a couple of things, though. One, yeah, it is very definitely deliberate. This isn't mm-hmm. your father's Bond. Because he isn't. He's not James Bond until the last minute of the movie. Right. He spends the entire movie essentially becoming Bond. He's Bond Begins. Warren Ellis made the point that actually in Casino Royale, James Bond is the Bond girl and Vesper is Bond and Vesper teaches him how to be James Bond. Hmm. There is a lovely irony, though, that Bond becomes Bond by a woman. Hmm especially given how misogynistic he is at the end of the film because of what happened to him 
Right. So it's it's it is a very good interpretation of the film. And yeah, it's not sexy and sloppy because he's not yet. He's not there. Daniel Craig James Bond is summed up by that fight scene on the cranes. Uh, like in about 20 odd minutes into Casino Royale. The, the it's my, parkour it's my guy, favorite action sequence. I love that is, whole it's, scene. It's brilliant. The parkour guy is running and jumping and sliding and he's all being all slinky and Spider-Man like and James Bond just runs, runs through walls. Runs through the drywall. Just yeah. That's it. He's not got time for all this shit. He's not flashy. Yeah. He's not running and jumping and dancing and being a ballet dancer. He's just head down, thud. <laughs> He's raced through the drywall, and he follows that course of action right through chasing him across the cranes. It's just, I ain't got time for this shit, dude. And I, love, I love the guy Bond. unloads his gun, and when he runs out, he throws the yeah. gun at him, and Bond catches it and whips it back. And <laughs> chucks it back at him. <laughs> oh, so good. Such a good moment. Oh, it's just absolutely fantastic. Yeah, so it's great stuff. All right, moving on. My next pick, we've got the song Moondance by Van Morrison from the movie An American Werewolf in London. Well, it's a marvelous night for a moon dance With the stars up above in your eyes A fantabulous night to make romance Neat the cover of October skies You know the leaves on the trees are falling To the sound of the breezes that blow you know, I'm trying to please to the calling of your heartstrings that play soft and low. You know, the night's magic seems to whisper and hush. You know, the soft moonlight seems to shine in your blush. Can I just have one more moon dance with you, my love? Alright, this was uh, this was another song that I poached from Andy's list. Um, and you know, I, I thought I was like, hmm, I don't think I've ever heard Andy mention this movie or Van Morrison. I always love this song. I mean or I like the movie, you know, it's one of my top five horror films. So like, why would Andy have had this on Oh, is it possible that it's Jenny Agator? It could be entirely possible to pick this up because of Jenny Agatha. There's a couple of things there. One, I do love American Wolf in London. I think it's the first horror film I saw back when I was younger that, that was a comedy as well, mm-hmm. that showed me that this stuff could be intentionally funny, as opposed to, like, you know, you slasher movies that are often unintentionally funny. But I also think American Wolf in London got lumped in with that whole video nasty thing. I don't know if you know about early 1980s the government under margaret thatcher had this thing that you know videos were the cause of all evil in the world and there was this video nasty and th- there was a famous newspaper headline ban this sick filth and a load of really good quality movies as well as bullshit ones got banned including evil dead and texas chainsaw massacre and stuff like that and you could still find them they were still easy to find in the burgeoning days of vhs and american werewolf kind of got lumped in with that but did never got banned and i think that was largely because of the comedy element of it so that kind of got a pass but there is so much about american will unlike the other directors we've mentioned so far john landis has made bad films <laughs> But American Werewolf isn't one of them. And one of the things that I do love about American Werewolf, going back to what we were saying earlier on, like we planned this stuff, the geography is bullshit. (laughs) 
<laughs> why would a man who is attacked on the Yorkshire Moors go to a hospital in London? That makes not a lick of sense. But, you know, we get Jenny Agatha and we get the shower scene with Jenny Agatha. <laughs> and for young me, this was very, very important. In later years, my wife has took great delight in pointing out that young Agatha looks like my mum when she was younger because it's the pointed up nose. So she has forever ruined my crush on Jenny Agatha. Thanks, Ange. <laughs> but for young me, yes, that, that scene in this film was pivotal. But it's a lovely song as well. It is a lovely, it's a beautiful night oh, yeah. for a man. It's, it's just a generally nice song. No. And it is a lovely little song to have in the middle of all this carnage. <laughs> Right, and it's also, it, it is the thematic thing because of the moon, you know, that will play out and that becomes kind of a running pun and, and game now with a lot of werewolf mm. fiction and movies and things like that. Um, yeah, no, I, I've always liked the song. I, I love the the whole album, Van Morrison's Moondance album is, and I'm not a huge Van Morrison fan, but I really love this album. And uh, actually, the song isn't, I don't even know if it's in my top five favorite songs on the album, but I do like it. Uh, I love the movie. Yeah, it is one of my favorite horror movies, um, and yeah, so I'm, I'm I'm glad I'm glad that you picked it out and and put it on your list so that I could take it. Yeah, well, another good thing about American Wolf in London that worked for us was there's a lot of great British characters actors in it. You know, Rick Mail is in that movie. Oh, they, yeah, they're, God, there's somebody else who there's somebody in the pub in the beginning that I I ah, what's the guy's name? Oh, Glover. Brian Glover. Brian Glover, yeah, he's in there. He's Brian in the Glover is, is in the... Don't go on to me, lad! <laughs> yeah. You've got Brian Glover, you've got a young appearance from Rick Mayle, you've got the guy who plays the Doctor, who was in low I've forgotten his name, but he was in loads of things. Mm-hmm. And there's like, you just just little faces, you oh, it's that guy. It's like Star Wars and Superman, but in those films, they're dubbed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, John Landis, I mean, yeah, it... I, I I don't even uh, potentially criminal murderous thing, but um, all, yeah, and he gave the word max, so you know. Oh, yeah, okay. All the controversy aside relating to John Landis, which I don't want to get into, I would say like he had a streak of five or six movies right around that time, early eighties or late seventies to early eighties. I mean, I would hold that up against almost any other director and their streak of movies. Um, mm. uh, we're talking about uh, National Lampoon's uh, Animal House, uh, all the way up through Trading Places, um, mm-hmm. uh, Coming to America, and... Blues Brothers. Blues Brothers, thank God. I couldn't, my, my favorite one on the list, I couldn't even think about it. <laughs> um, so yeah, he yeah, just an incredible streak uh, of good movies there. Uh, not so much since, but... Um, no. Yeah. Well, I think Trading Places is Eddie Murphy's best film. I love Trading Places. I, I mean, I, I go back to Beverly Hills Cop is in my top five all time, but yeah, Trading Places is also... Yeah, it's... No, yeah, great great stuff, also. Mm. I don't... Yeah, I just... I don't want to think about John Landis now, but it's... it's I, I can't deny... Yeah, great movies there. But. All right, let's go. Let's uh, take a take a turn. Your next one. Oh God, yeah, it's something kind of funky from Book Rogers. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, 
Glenn Larson did two attempts at trying to outdo Star Wars. He did Battlestar Galactica and he did Butt Rogers. And both of them have a ridiculous song in them, just like the Cantina song. But only one of them has Gil Gerard strutting his stuff on the dance floor. <laughs> you know, he goes up to the keypad and the keyboardist and the only note he gives them is, let yourself go. You know, that's it. That's the only note he gives them. And they come up with this gem of a disco song. And then you've just got Buck flirting mercilessly with Princess Adala. It's just baffled by this guy and what he's doing. It's, it's arguably the best scene in the film in the fact that it's utter crap. Well, I'm glad that I watched. I watched the scene. Um, I've never seen the movie Buck Rogers. Never seen the whole thing. Um, <laughs> I actually pointed this out. Like this, this is a, a blind spot for me in, in a lot of pop folks. For the longest time, I didn't know the difference between Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon. Like I didn't know like which which one was which. Well, they, they were originally both played by the same guy. <laughs> yeah. So. I also I also haven't seen the Flash Gordon movie. Which every time somebody brings one of the songs from that soundtrack on the show, I have to repeat mm. that. Um, but listening, like hearing that scene or watching that scene and then hearing the song, it's funny because this will tie into another song. List. This reminds me of the song Guardians Inferno from James Gunn's Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Mm-hmm. And I can't help but wondering if that was something that he might have been going for. Um, I, I think so. If, if, um, if he's going to be influenced by anything, I mean, he said Farscape. Mm. was a big influence on Guardians of the Galaxy. But what was a big influence on Farscape? That would be Butt Rogers. <laughs> I got nothing else to do. I mean, yeah. yeah, no, there's not a lot of depth to it. It's on this list purely because it makes me laugh like a drain <laughs> whenever I watch this film. And I quite sadly, I do watch the pilot for Butt Rogers semi-regularly because... <laughs> If it's it's one of those, right, Butt Rogers is one of those shows that, like The Six Million Dollar Man, is ripe for a reboot because the central idea is absolutely fantastic. Mm-hmm. And then Glenn Larson got his hands on it. <laughs> and it's like, you're watching it going, what is this? Is this a serious study of a guy who's lost 504 years of his life and he's struggling to fit in? Or is it a disco thing? <laughs> and you're like... No, it's a disco thing. <laughs> I did no. There's nothing deep about this choice. I just love the scene. It just never fails to make me smile, especially the cutaway of Tweaky going and dancing as Buck's got all this ridiculous music going on, and Wilma Deering all fuming because Buck's interested in another woman. Because if there's nothing we learn from the 25th century, it's the women are only ever interested in Buck Rogers. No other man can hold a candle. It's a book, Rogers. Absolutely not. Not, not with that name. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if that was something to do with it. Huh? Oh, book. You called book. All right. I thought it was something else. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> right. Roger might have a different connotation over there than it does here. <laughs> and again, oh, who knows? Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> Rhymes <Anyway>. with book. <laughs> All right, moving on. Uh, the next song, and this is one that I took from your list, uh, as, as just mentioned, going with a song from Guardians of the Galaxy. This is Cherry Bomb by The Runaways. Okay, 
song actually in a different movie. It was in the movie Dazed and Confused, uh, just during a sort of montage transitional scene where you see a lot of a lot of kids driving down in like their cars and everything, talking to each other. Um, I, I liked the song then. Uh, in college, like later, I would become a fan of Joan Jett, which I talked about on another episode. So I checked out her stuff with The Runaways, and I, I was ready to like the song already. And when I saw it used in Guardians of the Galaxy for this montage, this setup, and it's it's you know it's the it's the prep scene in the movie, you know, but yeah. before the heist or before the job, whatever you gotta do, you get characters, you know, getting dressed, they're gearing up, they're grabbing their weapons, intercut with certain characters explaining points of exposition to who's the plan, what's your job, what's my job, what kind of resistance are we gonna face, all of this stuff going on, but intercut with with Cherry Bomb, and just like the little details that make James Gunn like such a, a master, and and how he was able to capture these really bizarre ideas and just make it palatable. When you see Rocket walking down the hall with a gun over his shoulder and just like grabbing his crotch to adjust the tightness of the uniform, just mm-hmm. a little detail like that. It's like these guys know what they're doing, and they're really damn good filmmakers. <laughs> yep. I mean, I didn't pick it purely for that. I mean, I love it, and I love the song, and I love Joan Jett, and I love its place in the movement. I in the movie, sorry. I picked this because it just so reminds me of my wife. <laughs> really? That's the reason I have this song, yeah. It so reminds me of Angela. Hello, Daddy. Hello, Mom. I'm your ch-ch-ch-ch-ch-ch-cherry bomb. And it's just, I often refer to her as sugar-coated barbed wire. <laughs> because she's got she's got that look. I don't know if anyone knows my wife, but if they do, she's got that look. She's blonde and blue-eyed and quite fur, and she looks, you know, like butter wouldn't melt. But inside, she's got the dark heart soul of, a, of somebody whose sense of humor is black as coal. <laughs> and so this song just reminds me of her. I just think of Angela when I hear this song. Wow, nice. Um, <laughs> nothing to do with no deep meaning on the film. Sorry, doesn't, <laughs> just reminds me of my missus. I'm your wild girl. Doesn't need anything else. Um, no. Nope. Another uh, fun little MCU fact that I, I I thought of or occurred to me when I was looking this up. Um, the two guitarists for the Runaways at the time they weren't they weren't the singers, um, but Joan Jett was one of them. The other guitarist was Lita Ford. She had a solo career after that, which included singing the song "Kiss Me Deadly," that was used in the movie Captain Marvel. Carol and right. Carol and her friend, uh, not Monica Rambeau. What was Monica's mom's name? What was Monica's mom's name? I cannot for the life of me remember. 
Okay, the other Rambo. <laughs> the older Rambo. The older Rambo. Um, in, in one of the flashback scenes, they're singing this song in the in the bar uh, together, doing like a karaoke or something. Oh, so and, yeah, yeah, yeah. When um when Carol is doing like when her her memory starts the flashback of her life on Earth. Anyway, moving on to song number nine. What do you got? Uh, give a little love by Paul Williams from the movie Bugsy Malone. We could have been anything that we wanted to be. Yes, that decision is ours. It's been decided where we could divide it. Let friendship double up our powers. We could have been anything that we wanted to be. hormonal Andrew feeling to this movie. It goes through my life a great deal. I first saw Bugsy Malone in about, well, God, 1980-81. It is one of those seminal movies that played on the BBC every holiday, every Christmas. They would play Bugsy Malone. And it's one of those movies you think you're not going to like. A kid's movie about gangsters where they shoot each other with custard pies. And it's a musical as well? Get out of town. But then you watch it and it's really fun and all the kid actors are really good in it. And you've just the director has said, you know, just imagine that the the custard pies are real bullets and you'll have a lot more fun with it. And it's just a genuinely fun and entertaining film. I really enjoy Bugsy Malone. But the other side of enjoying Bugsy Malone, in addition to the great songs by Paul Williams, of which there are many, there is lots of great songs in this. So you want to be a boxer's in this and um, Fat Sam's Grand Slam is in this. Great tunes. But Jodie Foster's in it. (laughs) And eight-year-old me had a massive crush on Jodie Foster. And it's perfectly okay because she was 14 in this film, so she was older than I was. She's 10 years older than me in real life, I think. That has continued to this day. I still love Jodie Foster. So my love of Bugsy Malone basically can be tied down to the same reason I liked American Werewolf. (laughs) (laughs) But no, I I do genuinely love the film and I do genuinely love the songs. And it was was a tough one between Give a Little Love and So You Want to Be a Boxer because both of them I love. I think both songs are great, but ultimately, I think Give a Little Love, because Give a Little Love pays off at the end of the film. It starts being a different song when it's um, when it's talking about um, they could be, oh, so you want to be a gangster and all of that stuff. And then at the end, it pays off that, no, if you're kind to people, that pays itself back. So there's there's a call and response to Give yeah. a Little Love that I think that's ultimately why I picked it. So I haven't seen this movie and I haven't seen it for the reasons you were describing at the beginning, why yeah, somebody yeah, might not like Yeah, somebody like, says that to you, you go, what are you smoking? Like why a, would I want to watch yeah, that? It's like a kid's movie, a musical about kids as gangsters from the mid-70s. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
okay, let, is there anything else you got? Maybe let's let's. Um, um. So yeah, I, I've never seen it. Um, and then so I, I actually I wasn't familiar with the song either. And when I started playing it, it's really weird because the first couple of piano notes are really dark and haunting, mm-hmm. and I was like this. This sounds eerily like a Nightmare on Elm Street thing. What the heck am I listening to? And then it switches after a few bars, and it goes into this thing. And um, and this is, I think, now the second Paul Williams song on soundtrack selections after uh, Rainbow Connection, um, which mm-hmm. was on the first one. Um, well, he's a, he's a talented songwriter. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And a talented voice for the Penguin in Batman yeah. the Animated yeah, Series. Yeah, that as well, yeah. yeah. I mean, and the, the great thing about, again, there's just so many character actors in this that you remember i mean obviously the leads are scott bio and jodie foster mm-hmm. but in the background because it was shot over here bonnie langford's in this movie who your audience would probably best know as mel companion to colin baker's doctor who bonnie langford's a massive musical theater star over here dexter fletcher is yeah. in this movie yeah. before he would go on to star in press gang and then be a, a noted director which he is now having taken over Bohemian Rhapsody. And Mark Curry's in this. I don't expect a lot of your audience to know, but he hosted Blue Peter for a long time. And the 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 background faces, I think, is what makes it. You see that... I think Dexter Fletcher was something like six years old when he made this film. Hmm. It's, yeah. and it, is, it is one of those films you expect nothing of it. And I probably watched it because it was on in Christmas, over the Christmas holidays, about 8 o'clock in the morning. And I was up and it was on. <laughs> and I make a point. Now, I, my wife will tell you, I watch this every time it's on. <laughs> I love Bugsy Malone. He's Bugsy Malone. Do, 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 do. I love it. Love it. All right. Well, after I watch The Highlander, I will make a point to watch Bugsy Malone. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's it's Alan. It's one of Alan Parker's most accessible movies. It really is. <laughs> All right, my last song for the episode. Uh, one of them that I picked on my own. I am going with the title track from the movie La Bamba, originally by Richie Valens, as performed by Los Lobos. time when this movie was on VH1 all the time. VH1 was like a sister channel to MTV uh, at a time when MTV became obsessed with producing their own content that wasn't music video related, but reality shows like The Real World and, and other stuff. And VH1 was more focused on actually showing videos, although they tended to be more adult contemporary to what MTV was doing was more youth-centered. Um, but VH1 also showed a bunch of musical-related movies. 
And there was a time, I swear they must have been showing La Bamba every day for a whole calendar year. It was ridiculous. Um, <laughs> but I watched it a lot because I liked the movie. I really liked the movie. Um, I liked Lou Diamond Phillips, who plays Richie Valens. I loved him ever since I saw him in Young Guns. Uh, it's a musical biopic about this this kid, a uh, rock star from the 50s. His brother is played by Issa Morales, uh, who, when I was really younger, like scared me because there's a scene when he's drunk and violent in this movie, and I just thought he looked so intense and so nasty that it wasn't until like I, I could watch the movie later on and see he really was a, a wonderful character, a wonderful, loving, great performance. Um, but one of the things that's always stuck around with me, aside from the fact that I love the song, the original version is great, and then the slightly more up-tempo version done for the movie is even better, but the guitar that Lou Diamond Phillips plays in the concert in this movie when he's playing is the same guitar that I had in high school. Um, I got an electric guitar, did not stick with playing it for very long. Eventually, my brother co-opted it and kind of customized it and did his own thing. But my guitar was a Fender Stratocaster. It was a, a kind of black sunburst pattern. So um, it was kind of like bright orange fanning out from the the pickups and kind of like going into black on the side. And it's the exact same looking guitar that Lou Diamond Phillips has in the movie when he's playing the song. So I always kind of like that connection. Um, That's cool. Yeah. And, and besides that, I mean, it's just, it's a fun, it's a, it's a fun little rock song it's very old-fashioned old school it was always a a biopic that i loved with a very tragic and, and kind of the, the way it sets it up i mean considering richie valens is best known now as being one of the three artists who died in this in this plane crash at the prime of their career um hmm. that that event comes really out of the blue in the movie like for just like the last 20 seconds and it's like wait what but yeah um, i have never seen la bamba <laughs> No, but the song was everywhere. Yeah. And you're right. The version that is in the film is by Los Lobos, that's right, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yep. Um, is, is absolutely great. Yeah, it's a real toe-tapping foot-stomper. It's a great little song. Yeah, it was. It, the song was probably more prominent over here than the film. I'm sure it was I think, everywhere. Yeah. I think the song made number one for a number of weeks. Uh-huh. Yeah, Still gets her play as well. Yeah, cool. All righty then, Andy. What is our last song for this episode? Can, I can, you, can you leave us on a cliffhanger by any chance? <laughs> I could leave us on a cliffhanger. Now, wait a minute. I've got a plan. <laughs> I've probably just given it away, haven't I? If you were going to, did you do the running order this? Because this is a cracking song to end on. <laughs> um, it's Get a Blooming Move On, the Self-Preservation Society by Quincy Jones from The Italian Job. This is the Self-Preservation Society This is the Self-Preservation Society Don't wash your German vegetable rice too Come your bonnet fair, we've got a lot to do Put on your dicky-dur and your pregnant ride Cause time to hurry and buy Get your skates on, mate Get your skates on, mate no bib around your Gregory Peck today. Alley, from your plates of meat, right upon the seat. This is the Self-Preservation Society. This is the Self-Preservation Society. Gotta get a moving. Move on. Come on, that is a cool song. <laughs> <laughs>
I love it. We are the self-preservation society. <laughs> the Italian job is, um, for those that haven't seen it, is a 1960s caper movie starring Michael Caine and Benny Hill. <laughs> and Noel Coward, isn't it? <laughs> yes, and Noel Coward. And um, all of these people are in the movie. It's a caper movie about Michael Caine, who's a thief who goes to do some robbing in Italy. And he does it with three uh, minis, three little minis, red, white, and blue minis, in a car chase. Uh, it's nicked for an episode of MacGyver, I think. Oh, I because will... apparently yeah. this this film is not very well known in, in America. So they lifted that entire car chase for a scene in an episode of MacGyver, which prompted a lot of wonderful complaints to the BBC. <laughs> You don't just nick the car chase from the Italian job and drop it in the middle of MacGyver. Well, obviously, if you're playing it to an audience that doesn't know what the Italian job is, they're going to think they've done a really great job of filming this car chase. It is just, a, it is the Ocean's Eleven of the 1960s. It is just an absolutely wonderful, hugely entertaining caper movie about a bunch of likeable cockney loundabouts who go about robbing the gold bullion from Italy. And it's just brilliant fun. And it's another one of those films that is on every Christmas on BBC or ITV or Channel 4. One channel will show the Italian job over Christmas. And it's just a great, great entertaining movie that ends with this song, although it is in the film at another point as well. But the car chase with the little minis is one of the finest ever seen, and it was ripped off wholeheartedly for an issue of Matt Fraction's Hawkeye. Oh, yes. (laughs) Yes. Where they're actually driving minis wearing the same outfits that the characters in the Italian job were. Oh, I forgot about that too. You're right. Yes, and I just I read that issue recently too. I, I read that whole run. Oh, I, I took it. that to Matt Fraction and the artist whose name I've temporarily forgotten. David Aja. And got David Aja, thank you. And I got them to sign that issue just because of the Italian job ripoff, which I made a point of telling both of them made that story for me. That they blatantly ripped off the Italian job. And Matt Fraction was like, I didn't think anyone would get that. <laughs> So, obviously, is this not well-known in America at all? Uh, oh, well, apparently we have a history of ripping off the Yes, Well, you remade it. You you made the sacrilegious step of remaking the Italian job. Okay, so in fairness, I have not seen the remake. But when that came out, Neither I, did, I. I did hear a whole lot of people saying, this is a stupid idea, just watch the original. So that yeah. was when. It was probably 2003, 2004. That was mm. when I actually went back and, and watched the original. I hadn't seen it until then. Um, and yes, blown away by, for anybody who hasn't seen it, don't want to spoil it, but the ending is a cliffhanger, which has been parodied. I th- this, that's the thing. It's probably a movie that is better known here for parodies and spoofs off of things from the movie more hmm. so than the actual whole movie itself. I bet people right. probably remember scenes or lines or, or bits from the movie as jokes that have been spoofed more so than they've actually seen or are familiar with the movie. Yeah. But, yeah. I love it. It's it's my favorite Michael Caine movie. Yeah. And I absolutely adore Get Carter which mm-hmm. is an absolute fantastic 60s crime pick. It's basically the two faces of Michael Caine. This is the cheerful, cheapy, chirpy Cockney. Everybody loves my name is Marco Caine. Everybody, the Michael Caine everybody loves. And Get Carter is Michael Caine, proper actor. 
Mm-hmm. And both of them are brilliant movies for different reasons. If you haven't seen The Italian Job, do yourself a favor over Christmas, crack open a couple of beers, get a pizza in and watch it because it is just a joyous film. Yeah, highly recommend, highly recommend. Uh, and yeah, this song um, arranged by Quincy Jones, but with the whole cast of the movie singing. Mm. The, the get vocals. a move on, mate. <laughs> get a move on, mate. Brilliant. Love it. Very fun. Uh, very good way to go out on this one. So, um, yeah, uh, I don't. I don't have anything else to say. But uh, thank you, Andy, for being on this episode. Thank you for basically just doing a bum's rush of this episode. Just like, hey, <laughs> let, me, let me let's do one of these soundtrack selections. I'm I'm free this weekend. I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, no, it, it's it was a pleasure and a privilege. Uh, it's always a joy to talk to you, Ryan. You know that I've got a lot of time for you, and uh, it was a pleasure to do this. Absolutely, and I I loved it. And the thing is, as well, I literally did invite myself <laughs> on with these are my songs. That's how, I think what that, I need to get on here. <laughs> that's how that's how Find Your Joy started too. Right, yeah, okay. Because there is a thing as well. I didn't pick a Tarantino because everybody picks a Tarantino. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it, it what informed this was basically just a bunch of films with songs in that I like. There's no rhyme or reason to it. It's just fun. All right, Andy. Where else can our listeners hear from you if they want to check out more of your stuff? Uh, I will invite myself into all of your shows at every available <laughs> opportunity. <laughs> uh, no, I do the Palace of Glitter and Delights over on Two Two Freaks, which is my basic pop culture. I talk about whatever the hell I like to talk about. Primarily Spider-Man, it has to be said. <laughs> um, and with Michael Bailey, I do the Overlooked Dark Knight. They're pretty much the only ongoing things I have at the moment. Um, and the Overlooked Dark Knight is a companion piece to your Batman show that you do with the lovely Chris, um, where we basically look at what we consider to be overlooked Batman stories and try our best not to pick ones that you've picked. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, have to, I'll have to share with you our list because I've got all of next year plan, planned out. Yeah, I'm going to let you another secret. Mine and Mike's show is, you want to talk about this story? Yeah, you're free next week. Yeah, okay. <laughs> That's our planning. That's the level of planning that goes into our show. Nice. Well, I, I loved your coverage. Uh, well, the the entire Jim Starlin era, which has been good up to this point. Uh, but I really enjoyed how you guys covered uh, the cult. Uh, that was really, mm. really good. It's a story. It's, it is by far a very underrated, underappreciated story. Uh, it's yes. one that I've always liked, yes, primarily because of the Bernie Wrights and art. But it's just, yeah, a really good story. And I, I love the way you tackled that one. So very good. Thank you very much. We had a lot of fun. Yeah. Alrighty, folks. Uh, as always, thank you for listening to the show. Fire and Water Records is a proud part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com, as well as Facebook and Twitter. Special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information on how you can support the Fire and Water Podcast Network, visit patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. You can also support the show by going to Apple Music or Apple Podcasts or Spotify, whatever, and leave us a nice five-star review. Every review for Fire & Water Records helps push this podcast to a wider and wider audience. All music clips and quoted lyrics are used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Thank you for listening. What's up, danger? Like, what's up, danger?